You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Today's show is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Jacob, Griffin, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Roger the Jolly, Hartman, Gingrich, Lisa, Kevin, Brock, Clan Roland, Big Beard, Willie P., Brian, Lancelot, Schmarls, Madame Anita, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, Jonathan, the Admiral Binbow, Misfit, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Ash, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, James, Brock, Four-Eyed Sloth, Artemis Killmeister, The Sextant, Randy Savage, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin-Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. I spent this last weekend at a good friend's bachelor party. And, well, sure, that involved cigars and imbibing some drinks. It also involved a day at the amusement park and roller coasters. A lot of roller coasters. I'm the kind of person that likes to scream while on a roller coaster. As I'm sure you can all tell, this has left me just a touch hoarse. I'm doing fine, but my usually smooth and buttery voice is a little bit gravelly. It's not ideal, but we'll get through it together. I said last time that today we were going to talk about the Admiral Sir John Benbow, but in that story I didn't find enough really to make an interesting narrative, so instead we're going to be looking at the pirate settlement on St. Mary's Island. In particular, we're going to look at the relations between the pirates, and the pirate-adjacent types, and the local Malagasy people. However, our sources on this period are all less than perfect. We have a few secondary sources for what happened in today's story, those of Adam Baldridge and William Kidd specifically. And we have a few primary sources for people who were on Madagascar and can tell us a bit about the culture. There's the Journal of Robert Drury, for example, who a few years later would live in captivity on Madagascar. That is, if he was in fact a real person, 
But while that will tell us a bit about the Malagasy, it won't tell us much about the events we want to talk about today. And then there are some other sources, like, well, Woods Rogers, a man who we're going to get to know very well. He's going to write a book that will detail the pirates of Madagascar. But he's going to do that in about 20 years' time, when the pirates we want to talk about today are long gone. Then there's a passage from Alexander Hamilton. You should remember him from the Darien scheme. But Hamilton never actually stopped at Madagascar. He wanted to, he passed right by, but the second wave of Pirates of the Round was in full swing. Those same pirates with whom Woods Rogers was concerned. In his book, A New Account of the East Indies, Hamilton writes mostly about the pirates of Madagascar. He devotes only one paragraph in his chapter about the region to the Malagasy people themselves. He mentions the feuds between the warring groups of people, which will concern us today, and goes into a bit about their respective physiognomy. But about their culture, he writes only one thing. He says, quote, What religion they profess, I know not and the pirates are but scurvy schoolmasters to teach them morals. End quote. This is episode 269, Scurvy Schoolmasters. And I love that line, it's great, but it does illustrate a problem that we encounter here. All of our sources about the Malagasy tend to be European. We don't have anything from the era from the Malagasy themselves, and a lot of that stuff all assumes the weakness of the locals' moral fiber and, you know, their barbarous ways. Typical colonist stuff. But there is another side to that coin. We also occasionally find the noble savage trope. We see a lot of this type of talk in Volume 2 of A General History of the Pirates. And it's important to remember that whoever the author of Volume 2 was they almost certainly weren't the same person as the author of Volume 1, although they both said they were Captain Charles Johnson. The author of Volume 2, though, was a, a real revolutionary. You may remember that when we began our preliminary look at the Pirates of the Round, we did so with a discussion of James Misson, a fictitious French pirate, and we talked about the literary trope of utopia. So I think it's fitting that we should look at the beginning of the end of the Pirates of the Round through that same lens. These fictitious pirates under James Misson, they were all revolutionaries, political and social revolutionaries. The author, who invented these characters, wrote, quote, In throwing off the yoke of tyranny, he means turning pirate here, he hoped none would follow the example of tyrants, and turn his back on justice. For when equity was trodden underfoot, misery, confusion, and mutual distrust naturally followed. Men who were born and bred in slavery, by which their spirits were broke, who, ignorant of their birthright, and when he's talking about their birthright, he means the natural rights of all mankind, and the sweets of liberty danced to the music of their chains, which was, indeed, the greater part of the inhabitants of the globe, would brand this generous crew with the invidious name of pirates. End quote. Now, that's all Age of Enlightenment stuff, and way ahead of its time. 
the James Misson that we find in the text is basically an anarcho-Christian. That's a belief that no king can rule innocently, that governments are, in their very existence, they're oppressive machines meant to grind the people down, people who are naturally free, that we are all one in the divine light of a single supreme being. And this was written in 1726. That kind of thing was, you didn't see it anywhere. Leo Tolstoy, who had become one of the major proponents of this kind of belief system, wasn't going to get to this stuff for more than a century. The early Enlightenment philosophes who would bring about things like the American and French revolutions, well, most of them hadn't even been born yet. So the story of James Masson is pretty wild for the time. And a big part of that story is an alliance that the pirates made with the Malagasy. You know, the pirates would learn a lot from the Malagasy people, and thanks to their ignorance of the civilizing effects of civilization, well, they were all natural and therefore free, as man is supposed to be. And, you know, there might actually be something to that beyond the traditional noble savage trope. In his book Fragments of an Anarchist Anthropology, the anarchist anthropologist David Graeber writes, quote, They, and he's talking about a particular tribe of the Malagasy, they are marked by resolutely egalitarian social organization and practices. They are, in other words, the anarchists of northwest Madagascar. To this day, they have maintained a reputation as masters of evasion. The French administrators would complain that they could send delegations to arrange for labor to build a road near a village, negotiate the terms with apparently cooperative elders, and return with the equipment a week later, only to discover the village entirely abandoned. Every single inhabitant had moved in with some relative in another part of the country. End quote. That description is of what is today a relatively small ethno-linguistic group on Madagascar, the Semeti people. The Semeti were never allied to any Europeans, especially not the colonial French in the 1800s, but they also weren't allied with the pirates of Libertalia. Again here, let's turn to the story of Captain Misson, and that's a myth, but it's kind of a creation myth. You know, the bones of what really happened are there. Captain Johnson writes, quote, The pirates were supplied by the queen with all necessaries of life, and Misson married her sister, as Caraccioli, he's the crazy priest that Misson brought with him, as Caraccioli did the daughter of her brother. Several of his men took wives, and some required their share of the prizes, which was justly given them, they designing to settle in this island. End quote. Now, none of that happened, Captain James Misson wasn't real, but Adam Baldridge was. When Adam Baldridge came to St. Mary's Island back in 1693, he did make an alliance with the nearby tribe, but not the Semeti people. The people of St. Mary's Island, where Baldridge made his home, were the Betsimaraka people. Baldridge secured that alliance by marrying one of the Queen's relatives, Maybe a sister, maybe a daughter, maybe a niece. We don't really know his wife's name, but we do know the queen's name. She was Antavaratra Rahina. Antavaratra Rahina was not a powerful queen, but she did control most of St. Mary's. 
and she saw a benefit in an alliance with these Europeans. All the men that Baldridge brought with him, and he did bring a crew with him, they married Betsimaraka women and settled down. They built huts, and then they built houses, and then they built families, very much like Misson's fictional pirates. Now, I doubt that these British Americans thought much of their marriages when it came to the eyes of God. They were not Christian ceremonies, but local customs. But they were actually married here. These women lived with their husbands. They shared a bed, and most of these women already spoke English, and if they didn't, they learned. Baldridge and his men were married to these local women, and they had to be careful what they said around them. And this right here, this alliance, these marriages, that's the root of the pirate haven on St. Mary's. And like any good alliance secured by marriage treaties, it was kept floating by trade, Adam Baldridge traded extensively with the Betsimaraka people. He bought a bunch of foodstuffs from them, mostly cattle, but also a lot of rice and their local wine. In their paper, Pirates, Slavers, and the Indigenous Population in Madagascar, Arne Bulicheski writes, quote, In general, the indigenous people were keen to acquire beads, novelties, and copper or brass wire. Silver coins, the widely used Spanish pieces of eight, were also highly valued. Towards the end of the 17th century, however, the importance of these trade goods was gradually exceeded by muskets. End quote. See, the Semedi people, that anarchist society, controlled a large chunk of northeast Madagascar. They did so in a an anarchist, decentralized community of villages, but it was all that group of people. The Betsimaraka did have a foothold on the mainland, but mostly lived out on St. Mary's. But if you were to look at a map of the ethnic groups of Madagascar today, and Wikipedia has a good one, their positions have been swapped. The Betsimaraka control almost all of northeast Madagascar, while the Semedi people controlled just a sliver of the coast. Now, by 1693, these two groups had been at war for as long as anyone could remember, but it was the kind of small-scale, low-boil, never-ending conflict you very often see in tribal societies. You know, the two sides would raid each other, but they wouldn't really fight battles. Engagements were won mostly by capturing stuff, not killing as many people as possible. In Robert Drury's journal, and I'll note here that Robert Drury probably was not a pen name for Daniel Defoe, but it was for a long time assumed that it was a pen name for a fictitious account written by Daniel Defoe. However, it was written by somebody else, and many scholars today think it might just be a legitimate journal. But Drury writes, quote, The natives addict themselves extraordinarily to robbing and pillaging of their neighbors, not only of goods, but of wives, for which reason great feuds arise amongst them, which oftentimes breaks into an open hostility. Sp 
spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. But then, that's when the English arrived. Adam Baldridge with all of the guns he had to trade. Guns that they traded exclusively with their allies, the Betsimaraka people. This gave the Betsimaraka an obvious advantage in any conflict. Captain Charles Johnson, who also probably wasn't a pen name for Daniel Defoe, writes, quote, The Queen's brother asked the English, who were not under his command, if they were willing to join him in repelling the enemies of their common host. He means the Queen here. And, one and all consenting, he mixed them with his own men. The party, which went by land, fell in with and beat the enemy with great ease, who were in the greatest consternation to find their retreat cut off by Misson's boats. And again, that's an allegory for what really happened here, but Adam Baldridge's men did aid in the long-running war between these two peoples. I picture them kind of like the military advisors that the U.S. sent over to Vietnam early in the war. They weren't really there to fight exactly, but instead to teach their allies how to use the new weapons that they supplied them. But the Betsimaraka took more and more territory from their enemies, more and more cattle, and more and more women. And with victory came spoils. Mostly the English were interested in the cattle. They built huge herds there on St. Mary's. But they were also interested in those wives that Captain Johnson mentioned. Adam Baldridge and his men, all of whom were married to Malagasy women, Well, they built themselves a brothel. And they also built all the trappings of civilization they needed, houses, a fort, fields, all that kind of stuff. But among all of that, there was a brothel filled with the women taken in raids against the Semeti people. And the authors never quite call it a brothel. It's always a polite lie, whatever language they choose to use. But it was a brothel. However, we shouldn't picture some kind of big, two-story brothel house. It was more likely a grouping of huts around a central area, maybe with some kind of awning over it all. 
An open-air common room surrounded by huts, at least that's how I picture it. Make no mistake, these women were slaves. It was sexual slavery, but it was more than that. They also did all of the cooking and washing of clothes and all of the, you know, feminine labors of little Libertalia. That brothel that Baldridge and his men built proved to be a big draw for the pirates that began to congregate on and around Madagascar. Whenever a pirate ship would stop at St. Mary's Island, they would trade all of their pirated goods to Baldridge, and then they would buy a bunch of cattle, and rice and wine, but a lot of cattle, and they'd spend a few months fattening those cattle up, and then slaughtering them, and then salting them for their next voyage. During those months on land, they paid regular visits to the brothel on St. Mary's. With any luck from any given man, Adam Baldridge might just make all the money he had paid out back before the pirates departed once again. You know, there's something a lot more honest about the prostitution in a place like Port Royal or Nassau. I mean, I get that a brothel in Nassau wasn't a great place to end up, and a lot of women were sent there as a prison colony, but it was still something of a home for those people, and the women working there got to keep some of the money that they earned, and in doing all that work they got to curse and drink and crack jokes. They were a part of the community. And if someone visiting their establishment were to abuse one of the women, that person was going to get a knife stuck through his ribs, probably by the woman herself, but if not, the other women in their establishment would get the job done, and if for some reason that was impossible, these brothels were frequented by groups of heavily armed killers who, you know, they liked the women who worked there. If push came to shove, they could see that the guy got what he deserved. It was a give-and-take relationship. That's not what the brothel at St. Mary's was, though. These women were captured, enslaved, and then forced into prostitution. But that's only the beginning, when the English, be they pirates or pirate-adjacent types, or even more or less legitimate merchants, whenever any of them took part in a raid against the neighboring kingdoms, they got to keep half of all the booty taken. That included cattle and people. It was mostly cattle and people, in fact. You know, one second here. When we in the U.S. hear the word cattle, we tend to think of cows. But in the 1690s on Madagascar, the word cattle meant something a bit different. Now, most of the livestock was something called zebu, which is a lot like a typical cow, but it's different and apparently tastes a lot better. But they also had hogs. They have the bush pig, which is a pretty common African hog. They've got a couple of different species of goat that aren't found anywhere else in the world. And then, of course, what Europeans called the turkey bird. These birds are native to Madagascar, and they were prized in Europe for their delicious fatty flesh and their beautiful plumage. These are the birds who were sold to Venice and thus to Europe through Constantinople, hence why they were called the turkey bird. But they came from Madagascar, and they looked a lot like an American turkey. Not exactly, but you can see the resemblance, and that's where the American colonists got the name for the turkey. So cattle wasn't just beef, but a variety of different meats. That's a fun aside before we get back to the horrors of the reality on Madagascar. 
Most of the men who took part in the raids against the neighboring Malagasy tribes weren't pirates. When pirates were ashore, that was their time for R&R. They were going to have to go back and live at sea for a few more months, and there was going to be hardship and death in their future, so they wanted to take it easy, not get in any fights while ashore. Note, most of those were the pirate-adjacent types that we talked about last time. Now, that's not to say, though, that the pirates did not enjoy the fruits of that system of capture and enslavement. There's the brothel, we already talked about, obviously, but all that cattle. You know, cattle takes a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of food and water. And who do you imagine tended the cattle that all of these raiders had stolen? Who actually built the fort that Adam Baldridge used? Did Baldridge and his crew do it with their bare hands? No. Everyone doing the real work was an enslaved person. But putting all of that aside, there's a reason that I wanted to focus on the cattle a minute ago. The pirates needed a lot of meat. They filled their ships with rice, and that's great for them, but they needed meat. And meat for a couple of hundred men, enough to last for months at a time, that can deplete a herd amazingly quickly. Now, early on, they just bought up whatever cattle had been captured from the neighboring people, but soon enough that began to run low. And when that happened, these gangs of hardened killers had a way of getting what they wanted. It wasn't always violence that they used against their nominal allies, but the threat of violence that they posed, that can go a long way. You know, we need some cattle, so why not hand it over so nothing bad happens to you? The people who were supposed to be their allies were beginning to suffer the effects of what was essentially an occupation by these Europeans. And it wasn't only cattle and meat. Despite the brothel that was well-stocked with beautiful young women, rape became very common among the allied peoples of St. Mary's and the northeast coast of Madagascar. And it wasn't always violent, you know, at the point of a sword, but... Armed gangs of hardened killers had ways of getting what they wanted. Now, none of this was, as far as I can tell, sanctioned by Adam Baldridge. I don't want to try to paint him as a nice person here. He wasn't. He was a violent slaver. But he had an alliance with Queen Antavaratra that was valuable to him. And the alliance was also valuable to the Queen. She was winning a ton of territory at an amazing rate. It was a mutually beneficial relationship that they wanted to keep secure. And it's about this time I should note that Queen Antavaratra had a son, apparently with an English pirate named Thomas. Now there's been a lot of speculation that that was Thomas too, but it probably wasn't. It was probably another English pirate, I think most likely a man named Thomas Collins. Thomas Collins was one of those pirates who really lived on Madagascar. He'd sign up with a crew here and there, but his home, where he went back to whenever his raiding was done, was on St. Mary's. And I can't say we don't have anything from Thomas Collins, but we could assume that he's one of the pirates that disapproved of the other Europeans' treatment of the locals, and even maybe the taking of slaves. That's all speculation, but we know that he arrived early on, maybe as far back as Thomas II's first foray to the Indian Ocean. But he was definitely in the region, this we can confirm, when Henry Every arrived in 1695. 
Thomas Collins was in that fleet aboard the Amity under Thomas II. And he was back on St. Mary's Island when that boy was born to the Queen, who may have been his son as well. That was the summer of 1697. Thomas Collins was there with the rest of the former crew of Amity, currently on board the Charming Mary. As we discussed last time, a bunch of other pirates were there, including John Hoare and his John and Rebecca. At the time, there were probably more than 300 pirates on St. Mary's. And not all of them at all respectful, many of them causing quite a bit of mischief. Now, I like to picture Thomas Collins spending his time as the Queen's consort. You know, whenever he gets back, he goes back up to her palace, and they dally in the gardens and what have you. But the rest of the pirates were a real menace. Everything we've talked about today, the abuse, the rape, the slavery, all of it was a real problem, and tensions were rising between the pirates and their supposed allies. And because of this, something happened. And that's all I can really say. We don't have any eyewitnesses to this action for reasons that are about to become clear. So I'm going to paint a picture of what might have happened that falls in line with the circumstances we do know after the fact. First of all, Adam Baldridge left on a mission to Ile Bourbon, later renamed Reunion Island. He went either to buy or sell slaves, but either way, he was gone. And then, well, how to begin? It was a dark and stormy night. And that, actually, we know to be true. There was a terrible storm that evening. I imagine the queen secluding herself in her chambers, and I imagine that her lover and her infant son were nearby, and she had the doors locked tight and guarded. The pirates would have been huddled indoors to avoid the monsoon, and naturally they were drinking. The brothel was operating at capacity, Every woman there was occupied all night. Some thoughtful women from the nearby village, allies to the pirates, even came to help. They were there to serve drinks to the men. Strong drinks. And encouraging the men to drink. You know, they'd be laughing and sitting on laps and tipping the rum into the men's mouths. They were having quite the party as rain and lightning fell outside. But not all the pirates were ashore. Out on the water, a skeleton crew manned the John and Rebecca, and they were led by the quartermaster, Abraham Samuel, to hold down the ship. It was his men that evening holding down the ship as it usually was, by which I mean it was Abraham Samuel and the other black pirates. As the storm reached its peak, as the ship was tossed hither and yon, the anchor cable snapped, and the John and Rebecca drifted out to sea, and I'm sure that this was just an accident. Anchor cables do snap in storms, after all. I'm sure it wasn't part of some overarching plan that had been cooked up ahead of time between the abused Malagasy peoples of St. Mary's Island and the similarly abused black crew of the John and Rebecca. John Hoare, the captain, well, he was in the brothel that night. 
The charming Mary, well, she was at St. Mary's. It seems like they may not have been at Adam Baldridge's trading post. They were down the coast a little bit. However, some of their men were at the post cavorting. In the brothel, sitting around the fire, beautiful women tipping drinks into their mouth, laughing, singing, I wonder if John Hoare noticed that some of his men were not returning from their dalliances with the women. And, you know, they were all drunk. The night was growing long. They probably just passed out somewhere, right? Honestly, I'd doubt that Hoare even noticed. He would have been drunk as well, and probably had a woman of his own on his knee. But their numbers were thinning, little by little. The group around the fire shrank. Soon enough, though, every man present was spent. Every last one of them passed out somewhere, most around the fire, where they had shelter and warmth, some, though, in the bed of one of the ladies. But not a one of those men would wake. One by one, those enslaved women in the brothel who had been forced to service these men for years at this point, one by one, those women dragged a knife across the throats of the men who had used them. Those women who had come to help that night, women from the nearby village who were nominally allied to the pirates, who were nominally enemies of those women who were enslaved, well, they'd been abused as well, and they did their work in the common room. As the pirates snored, they moved throughout the room, every one of them getting into position and, on a signal, each of them plunged knives and swords into the sleeping pirates. But the work wasn't done. Not every pirate on St. Mary's was in the brothel. Some, including Adam Baldridge's men, well, they were in the big house. And it's at this point that the men arrived. A coalition of men from both the Semeti and the Betsimaraka people they emerged from the trees and climbed the walls of the fort, knives in their teeth, swords at their belts, dropped in on the other side, and they went to work. Silently, covered by the storm, they moved throughout the fort room by room, stabbing or slicing the throat of every man there. By dawn, of the three hundred-odd pirates who had been at St. Mary's, not one was left alive. What I've just related is a story. It was built on the bones of what we know, and I sprinkled in details that we also know. But it's not history, because the only person who was left alive to tell that story, aside from the killers who didn't leave memoirs, the only person left alive was a cabin boy from the John and Rebecca. We do know, however, what the men from Charming Mary, who were just down the coast, we know what they saw when they arrived a couple of days later. It was blood. The bodies had been disposed of by that point, but everything, the brothel, the big house, the huts, the ground, everything was stained with blood. Naturally, the men of the Charming Mary questioned the nearby townspeople. What's happened here? While the locals naturally knew nothing, they made it very clear that the pirates were no longer welcome. The men of the Charming Marys, the remnants of Thomas II's crew, were not enough to overwhelm 
the locals, standing firm, so they left. A couple of weeks later, Adam Baldridge returned to his trading post at St. Mary's, and I really wonder how he reacted. My first inclination is shock. To return to your trading post and find it empty of people and covered in blood, you know, that's a shocking moment, but it is surprising that this happened while he was gone. Maybe that was an attempt to secure the alliance between Baldridge and the local Malagasy. The queen would not have wanted him killed. But all of his men were killed. And it's possible, I don't know how likely, but possible, that he had been informed that something was going to happen and it would be best for him to make himself scarce for a few days. Either way, when he got back, I think he was surprised at exactly how bloody it had been, because he packed up his belongings, all of the riches he had stashed away, and he left. Alliance or no, this did not appear to be a friendly place anymore. According to legend, Adam Baldridge took Thomas Collins with him, or at least some pirate named Thomas. And that Thomas brought with him his infant son, named Ratsimi Hollow, who was going to be educated in New York when Baldridge arrived there. And so, for the time being at least, St. Mary's Island was reclaimed by the Betsimaratka. The pirate utopia at Libertalia was dead. It would be reborn in a few years' time, but even right now, those pirates out there on the Indian Ocean didn't get the memo. At this moment, the Mocha frigate carrying Robert Culliford was headed for St. Mary's. So was Captain Kidd and his fleet. The John and Rebecca, though, was not going to return to St. Mary's Island. That's why I believe that it may not have been an accident that that anchor cable snapped. Instead of heading back to where their crew was, they headed south. Now, the ship did crash on the coast of southern Madagascar, and as it happened, they crashed at an abandoned French fort, which also suggests there may have been some planning involved in all of this. Now, that fort was called Fort Dauphin, but this crew of freedmen from Martinique, they took command of the fort and called it Fort Dolphin. These men, all of them black, all of them former slaves and pirates, they elected Abraham Samuel as their leader. That's how pirates did business, after all. But Abraham Samuel was going to take the next step. He was going to claim territory and conquer and rule those he conquered, but he was going to do so wisely. Within a year, he was proclaimed king by every group in southeastern Madagascar. His territory and his numbers rivaled that of Queen Antavaratra of the Betsimaraka tribe to his north. And thanks to years of trading guns to the Betsimaratka, both groups were heavily armed. A war between the two groups would be disastrous, not raiding for cattle and people, but death and murder on a mass scale. So they didn't fight. They lived in peaceful antagonism for several years to come. But eventually, those two groups would have to fight. They had to fight the Europeans who came to Madagascar. The English, the French, the Dutch, they all tried for Madagascar. But first, the Queen's son, Ratsimi Hollow, 
in 18 years' time to reclaim the throne of the Betsimaratka. He would not live in peaceful antagonism with Abraham Samuel. Their war was going to be long and bloody and hard, but it was going to be interrupted with the arrival of Captain Woods Rogers. That's all for the future, though. For now, Libertalia is all but dead. Next time, Robert Culliford and William Kidd will learn just how dead it really is. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like the Explorers Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, you can check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight